0: Welcome, everybody, to the third episode of the second season of In Plain English. I am your host, Jamie Maffa. Today, we're going to be discussing the paper virus, a newly identified henipavirus in China, zoonotic pathogen causing febrile illness in humans and its health concerns, current knowledge, and counteracting strategies, by Sandeep Chakraborty et al. And here to discuss this paper with us is our expert, SB Pai. Uh, SB, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. So my name is S.B. I'm a third year Ph.D. student in the lab of Dr. Carolina Lopez at Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, sort of broadly, I study HANEPA virus replication, and I'm super interested in viral evolution and emergence and what makes some viruses so dangerous while other viruses are like barely doing anything. Uh, and so that's sort of what guides my Ph.D. research.
0: Great. Well, thank you for being here. Joining us for this episode are our two guests, Tanya Lintz and Hannah Tretanero. Uh, Tanya and Hannah, would you each like to introduce yourselves? Sure. Hey, I'm Tanya Lintz. I'm a 30-year
2: PhD student in the lab of José Moro Concepción in the Neuroscience Department, also at Washington University in St. Louis. And I study sex differences in um, opioid use, so pretty different from this.
3: Hi, my name is Hannah Tretanero. I am a pediatric nurse here
1: in St. Louis.
0: Well, th- again, thank you all for being here. And without further ado, uh, SB, let's get into it.
1: Yeah, so sort of before starting, I'd love to go around and get a feel for everyone's relationship with viruses sort of pre and post emergence of COVID. Um, I definitely know that I started thinking about viruses a lot more on the other side of COVID, especially having so much time at home to just sit there and think about viruses that they definitely play a much, uh, they definitely play a much bigger role in my life now than they did pre-pandemic. You guys sort of had a similar experience,
3: yeah, definitely. I actually pre-pandemic um, had just started getting into the healthcare world and was working at an urgent care when COVID started, um, and so my life kind of went from like not really thinking about viruses that much um, to that kind of being my world and. Doing a lot of testing and stuff like that for COVID. And now uh, working in a hospital as a nurse, I see a lot of the like clinical signs of viruses. So that's kind of my relationship with with them now.
2: Cool. Yeah, I worked as an EMT out in Boston. So my experience with viruses was pretty limited to patient work. And aside from that, COVID is pretty much the most that I've been interested in learning about viruses since then.
0: Probably very similar pre-COVID viruses were just kind of like an annoying thing that happened to you sometimes. And something that I learned about in medical school that was very, oh my god, I have to memorize 50 different viruses and the like treatments for all of them and their mechanisms and whether they have RNA or DNA. And I was like, this is just kind of annoying. And at post-COVID, viruses are obviously something that we think about a lot, definitely has changed a lot.
1: For sure. I definitely think pre-COVID, I never like got on an airplane and spent the entire time thinking, oh man, am I going to get a viral illness from this?
0: That's all I think about now is like 10 different people are coughing on this airplane and none of them are wearing masks.
1: So it's really interesting. I feel like our generation has had this like virus moment and previous generations have had virus moments too. But a lot of times when we have those big pauses between major pandemics, we sort of, Forget about it because it's super easy just not to be in our face. So I wanted to do like a quick history lesson to start us off to highlight just some of the infectious disease outbreaks historically that we think of first as being like the more devastating pandemic events. So like going way, way back to the Middle Ages, uh, from 1347 to 1351 was when the Black Death Plague was circulating around Europe. So that was called it's also called bubonic plague, um, and it was spread to humans from infected fleas that traveled on rodents. So when ships would travel around the world with their like rats that would get on board, the fleas that bit the rats would then end up spreading their disease from flea to rat. And then the disease would spread from rat to human and black death occurred. Um, and that ended up killing um, at least 25 million people, which is crazy when you think about the world population at that time. Um, and then. Sort of a couple centuries later, smallpox from 1520 all the way up until 1979, uh, that was caused by variola virus, and that's estimated to have caused 56 million deaths. Um, even more recently, Spanish flu from 1918 to 1920 caused 50 to 100 million deaths. HIV AIDS has caused over 40 million deaths. and We all know firsthand how devastating the COVID-19 pandemic has been um, caused by the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and that's already killed over 6 million people. So obviously this is like terrifying but what's really interesting is that when we consider the like global virome there's like an estimated and this is you know only as good as how much we're able to surveil for new viruses an estimated 1.6 million viruses in the world that are capable of infecting just mammals and birds. So it sort of raises the question, like if there's 1.6 million viruses around, why doesn't this happen more often, actually? Sort of by definition, an emerging disease is a disease that's caused by a pathogen that enters a new geographic area and expands its host range by transmission. So that means that it finds something new to be its host and spreads to that thing. And that's when we call it emergent. So for example, um, if a virus spreads from wildlife to domesticated animals, or from domesticated animals to people, or from livestock to people, all of these are events of emergence. And when we talk about pathogens, we could be talking about bacteria, viruses, parasites, any of these microorganisms, but specifically one that causes disease. So when we're thinking about pathogens emerging, it's things that cause disease in places they didn't use to cause disease. One thing that's really interesting, though, is that, like, obviously, so many things can be pathogenic. But actually, in the last century, most of the newly emerging and re-emerging diseases have been caused by viruses specifically. And so this is just, like, sort of interesting to think of as if you guys, like, really considered pandemic nature of viruses versus other things like the fact that we don't have parasite pandemics running around do you have any idea the reasons that that might be
3: viruses are super contagious it's easy for them to be passed from human to
1: human definitely they're experts at like hijacking other people's business and using it for their own stuff yeah so when we're talking about viruses versus all these other pathogens that can also cause disease A lot of these other pathogens that can cause disease don't actually evolve as quickly as viruses. So one thing that's really interesting is that viruses, we talk about a lot like with flu, for example, that every year there's like a different flu virus that's circulating. And so viruses do all these like recombination and like variant creating events. Like they do a lot of things to change themselves frequently. And that's sort of their way to stay relevant. Um, And they, because of the nature of just like how they're built, can do that while a bunch of other organisms have like a lot more stable, just like genetically, they're more stable. And so it takes longer for them to make these giant changes. Um, And also a lot of these things can get killed by like common water treatment techniques and like basic hygiene now. So like we don't think a lot about cholera, for example. A couple centuries ago, people were really, really worried about cholera, but now we drink really clean water and we're not so worried about a lot of these bacterial uh, infections that used to be so pro- so prominent. So for an emerging disease to reach pandemic spread, there has to be like a combination of a bunch of different things that all happen at the same time. So one of the factors that plays a big role in emerging disease is globalization. Uh, Just like the sheer amount of air travel and trade and trafficking that we do globally is so much more than it used to be. And it just gives us more opportunities to be in the same place as a virus might be. And so this is sort of interesting to think of from like a conservation standpoint too, because by changing our lifestyles and urbanizing and traveling so much more, we're also contributing to deforestation and rerouting wildlife migration patterns so that we're coming into much closer contact with wildlife than we would, we were maybe being a little bit more respectful of these habitats. It's interesting to think about when we like drive these native species out of their habitats, they come into contact with like domesticated animals and our livestock, and those things come into contact with us. So we might not always be like seeing the event directly, but by pushing ourselves into places that they used to be, it can make it a whole lot easier. For that kind of thing to happen and this accelerates how often viruses can emerge and also like how well they can circulate just because there's a whole bunch of different things to do have any of you guys ever played plague inc the game it's the best for sure yeah yeah it's yes. been a little while but i have awesome yes this is like early virologist me was obsessed with this game and in the moment i had no idea how like well designed it is but it's the same kind of thing where you can't just like drop your virus in like you can't drop your virus in a place that has no people. Like you don't wanna put it in Greenland or Iceland really and it's not gonna spread out. If you put it in Canada, the population density isn't always enough to spread it as quickly. Do you guys have any like strategies from when you played that that you remember being like the effective ways to win Plague Incorporated? It was definitely um, making sure to get the most populated countries.
3: Yeah, I don't quite remember, like, the strategy behind this, but I remember that it was important um, to be kind of sneaky. Like, you couldn't make people aware of the virus or bacteria or whatever before, like, it could start infecting everything. It was that sneaky aspect of it.
1: Yeah, it was a super smart observation. You could add resistance to drugs over time and you had to, like, slow down the scientists And the whole thing sort of being, can you evolve your virus faster than the scientists can find treatment? But also, like you said, going undetected for a while is super helpful because if you just like kill your host immediately, you don't have a chance to spread that virus anywhere. And so it dies with the host. And that ends up being the problem for some viruses, too, that they like emerge and are so deadly that they don't really spread because people just die so Aggressively from them, um, and but at the same time, other viruses emerge and nobody dies, and so it's super interesting to sort of consider all the different things that contribute to making that happen. Another thing that I think is really cool about viruses is that like one of the things that we don't think of very much when we think about viruses versus other organisms is like what their genes are made of. Like just like every other organism, viruses have genes that encode all of what they are um, but in the case of viruses they're made out of RNA instead of DNA and what's interesting is that the actual like proteins and enzymes that make that RNA genome have like a really high error rate it's greater than four orders of magnitude higher than the error rate of the the same proteins and enzymes that make up DNA in real time uh, and this is really interesting because it sort of puts a cap on how much virus that you can have because every time that a virus replicates it changes a little bit and so there's a balance between how long of a genome that you could possibly have and how much you could encode on that genome and how many mistakes you're going to get made along the way to maybe make that and maybe end up making something different and so viruses exist in these like communities really like when we think of viruses infecting people we think of like a virus gets inside of you and you get sick Uh, But in real life, viruses in a test tube are the, the sequence that we think of as a virus, but also a whole bunch of variants. And so like a bunch of things that can still replicate, they still look like the virus, but they have little changes in different places. And the more opportunities that a virus has to continue to spread and to continue to replicate and to continue to add these errors, the more likely we are for viruses to evolve, like actually functional differences from their ancestor viruses.
2: So I guess kind of with that, um, I was wondering about the life cycle of of these viruses. Is there commonalities or differences in the life cycle itself between ones that are more um, deadly to humans versus not?
1: Definitely. Um, One of the things that's interesting, so a lot of the time pathogens that infect animals, which we call zoonotic pathogens, they aren't well adapted to people. So they only emerge sporadically in what we call spillover events, which are essentially the same thing as emergence, but just like happens once kind of deal. Um, And often these are localized outbreaks that don't cause a huge commotion, but the more that these types of things take place, the better adapted the viruses can become to their new hosts. So this can eventually potentially result in human to human transmission and not just animal to human transmission. And it can specialize the viruses for those hosts more. And that's what sort of makes them better adapted to doing the thing. in the case of a lot of viruses, better adapted to being a killing machine. Um, in a lot of the cases, these spillover events um, happen, like I said, when um, we've got like a lot of population density or like inadequate healthcare systems in poverty. Um, and this is tough because these are the same areas where it's hardest to do like surveillance. And so it's hardest to figure out like exactly who's affected and how affected they are by the viruses and sometimes can keep us from finding viruses when they're still, Newly spilled over to people and maybe less aggressive. And so sometimes the viruses that end up being the most dangerous actually just have spilled over into people a whole bunch of times. And that's a huge contributing factor to them just picking up the kinds of things that they need to be better adapted to human hosts and to like, survive better, to replicate faster, and to avoid getting detected by the immune system. Um, one thing that's interesting um, so this paper talks about Hanebaviruses, which are these paramyxoviruses. Um, and they, so is the broader category, HANEPA viruses are a type of paramyxovirus. Um, and there are two really, really pathogenic Nipah viruses in history um, that we think of. they are Nipah virus and Hendra virus. So in 1994 in Australia, the Hendra virus was recognized when several horses and their trainer all died in a suburb of Hendra, the place. Um, and they all had a pulmonary disease, so like a lung or respiratory disease, uh, and hemorrhagic manifestations. A year later, in 1995, in Queensland, Australia, there was a second outbreak that affected two horses and one person who ended up dying from relapsing encephalitis. Um, so, Nipah virus has had outbreaks since then in 1998 in Malaysia, 1999 in Singapore, and 2001 in Bangladesh. So these are recurrent outbreaks since then. Uh, there have essentially been recurrent outbreaks since then every year in Bangladesh. And these outbreaks have a crazy high mortality rate of 261 identified cases, 199 people died. So the latest outbreaks that have been in India in 2018 and 2019 also had a case fatality rate of 91%. So these guys are like crazy deadly. But one thing that's really interesting um, is that for both Nipah and Hendra viruses, they're spread by this, it's called a Teropus, P-T-E-R-O-P-U-S, and, but they're called uh, also called the flying fox, um, and these are the natural animal reservoirs of Nipah and Hendra Nipah viruses. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen flying foxes before, but they are like crazy towns, so they're the largest bats and they can have wingspans of five feet and a head and body length of like 16 inches, which is the size of a medium dog jacket. So they are huge things. And they, they roost in giant groups and they eat fruit. Um, and what's cool is that they use like sight to navigate, not echolocation like other bats, even though they're still nocturnal. But since they eat these fruits, they transmit their Hanepa viruses like Nipa and Hendra through, um, like, they start to eat a fruit, it gets contaminated, and then people come into contact with that fruit and or with the secretions of the bats. And that's how these Haniva ended up jumping to people. So there's like a crazy life cycle tree of the like bat Haniva So essentially, they can transmit from bat to pig. Uh, and so that's like a lot of people in these areas have livestock, especially pigs. Um, when there was one of these earlier outbreaks, the 1999 outbreak in Malaysia caused them to cull over a million pigs, which decreased the like, entire Malaysian economy by 30% that year. It was insane because they, they were so worried about the spread of virus from pig to person happening even more and being even more deadly. And so it can go from bats to pigs. It can go from pigs to people can go from bats to people, can go from bats to horses, can go from horses to people, can go from bats to bats. There's all kinds of different ways that this virus can move around. And so these two are super well adapted, just like surviving, just like getting between stuff and staying in circulation, which has given them a lot of opportunities to sort of adapt and change and like evolve to become so dangerous versus the one that we're about to talk about. And another thing that's really interesting that can help sort of with the severity is also like how well the viruses get transmitted. So in the 2001 outbreak in India, it was one patient that got admitted to a hospital and 11 people got infected like immediately. Um, And so it's super easy to stick around when you can spread that quickly as well. But the one that we're talking about is really interesting because, so the way that this virus, Langia virus emerged is super different from the way that the Nipah and the Hendra viruses before it emerged. So those came from flying foxes, bats. Um, these actually come from shrews, the rodents. So there were these Pakistani authors in the Journal of Virus Eradication that published a paper last year, I think it was 2021. Um, where they described the first hint of transmission of Lange virus, uh, which was in 2018 in December, when a farmer visited a hospital um, in Shandong uh, province of China, presenting with a fever and a history of contact with animals within a month of developing symptoms. They didn't p- test positive for any known diseases, so they got enrolled in this like study where they would swab your cheek and test the genomes of whatever you might be infected with as a way to detect new viruses. Uh, And when they did that, they found that this was not the only person that was infected with this virus. There's like 35 other people in China that are all infected with this virus. And so they're like, oh man, this is like a whole thing. And so that's when it starts to gain traction. From 2018 to now, like I said, there have been 35 patients from three hospitals that were all suspected to be infected by this virus. 26 of them were confirmed positive by testing for the virus genome itself, and they had it um, in all of the cases, they had symptoms. So they had fever, um, 50% had a cough, a bunch of them had myalgia, m- muscle aches and pain. Um, others had headaches, some were vomiting, some of them had low w- uh, white blood cell count, a bunch had low platelet counts, and even some abnormal liver function, but nobody died. And so it's super interesting. Um, we've got essentially a virus from the shrews that was not nearly as dangerous and these viruses from the bats that are a lot more dangerous. And so that's one potential explanation is that something about the origin of these viruses could be what's responsible for the differences in how dangerous a virus can be, where they come from. But that's also, it can't be the full story either because there are other HANEPA viruses from bats that didn't like emerge and kill a bunch of people. Um, and so this is sort of like the big, it's a big hot topic in virology right now that I guess long story short, we don't know a clean cut answer for why some of the viruses are so much more dangerous than others, but a huge contribution to that is how many times it just comes into contact with people and how many times it can spill over.
3: Uh, I have a follow-up question on that. Um, when I was reading through this article, um, I underlined that like this virus um, is not serious and fatal. There is a quotation about like no need for panic. Um, so I guess I'm curious. Is this how all of our deadly virus viruses start as something we sh- shouldn't be panicked about? Um, or is this um, kind of in, a, in its own category?
1: I don't wanna make an all or nothing statement, but I'd say the majority of the time when we see these major like emergence events, there have been spillover cues before that that have indicated that at least this kind of virus has a chance of coming out somewhere. So to like take our favorite best friend that we all know and love, COVID, MERS and SARS-CoV-1 both emerged before that. And in both cases, people were like, we should keep an eye on that, but it's not an emergency right now. I think at that time, maybe less panic was raised. I know a couple of coronavirologists that were like working on coronaviruses before COVID, and they were definitely vehemently like, you should be worried about the coronaviruses. And so I think that definitely from the scientific community, there were people that were aware and concerned about it. But in both of those cases, they just weren't fatal enough. They weren't spreading fast enough to be an emergency. But all it took was essentially, there's a paper that came out like, um, I think, August of this year for co- uh, for coronavirus, where they showed um, it was either one or two separate studies that did like basically analysis of where COVID came from, tracing the different People that were infected early on and what kind of virus, like what virus exactly they were infected with of COVID. And they were able to say that it seems to them like there were two separate spillover events that happened in this same like fish market back to back and that that played a big role. One of those spillover events was like hypothesized to be more of the virus that ended up spreading and being crazy than the other, but both were there. And one thing that's like super unique and crazy about that is that that means that when people, those viruses are circulating together, which means that they can sort of help each other out Like those strains, those those isolates are circulating together and can help each other out becoming more and more virulent. So a lot of times we do have cues, but we also just can't predict. A lot of times, like with this lanya virus, people are talking about it a whole bunch, but not panicking about it yet because it's the same kind of thing where it's We're seeing it. It's an early emergence event, so it's not like a thing to be panicked about. But we can see now that Hanepa viruses from both bats and shrews can transmit into people. And so it's worth hoping and taking measures to make sure that they don't start transmitting from people to people.
2: So I see on the symptoms list a lot of things that are recognized from lots of other illnesses and diseases. So I guess I was wondering... Number one, I'm sure the numbers of actual, you know, people that are infected with this virus uh, are much higher than what's reported. And also, I was um, wondering um, how how the surveillance and tracking is, is done when we're, I assume we're not taking serosurveys of um, people and, and livestock just constantly.
1: Yeah, one of the things that's really tough is that this virus is like emerging in places where it's like dominated by the livestock industry, it's really densely populated, people maybe aren't going to be as likely to go scream panic terror virus spillover event over like a sniffle. And so the Taiwan Center for Disease Control, their version of the CDC, has announced a plan that they're implementing now for genome sequencing and surveillance of Longyear virus that involves testing animals and humans without necessarily waiting for cases to emerge as a way to monitor how things are going. Um, and this is sort of to ensure that if the virus does spill over again, it can be spotted early on before it becomes a problem. But it's also really important to start to develop like diagnostic tests early on and we start to notice this kind of thing that are more easily given. So like we know like you can take a rapid COVID test and get a result in like 15 minutes. But in the case of long virus, when it needs like whole genome sequencing of the virus to tell you what's going on, it could be a week in the best possible case, like a week of people being very eager to get this done to really know exactly what it is. So they are definitely increasing surveillance efforts, but I think a lot of virologists globally are calling for increased surveillance around the board of potential asymptomatic viral infections. And sometimes surveillance can be done through like sewer systems and through like common resources. It would be super exciting if there could be a way to like, do regular surveillance testing in many places for many kinds of viruses, just to get an idea of what's going on. But I also think it's tough to get funding for that kind of research because when the threat is like invisible, it's harder to sell to people that it's important. And so that's why it's important to do things like this, where we get to talk about virus spillover and why we should be worried and thinking about it.
3: I am curious as um, a scientific community nationally, internationally, how good are, are we at identifying this point where we should actually start being worried about a virus?
1: I think today, one thing that I'm always impressed with in the scientific community is that I think a lot of virologists and a lot of people that study emerging infectious diseases broadly are very excited about the viruses that they found, not excited as in like, this is a great virus, but excited as in listen to this, pay attention to this, this is important information. Um, and so I definitely think that from the scientist standpoint, people are speaking up that we should be worried about things. And, and typically the we should be worried point is when we start to reach a, a moment where a virus is transmitted from one people to more than a certain number of people that becomes you know, like unsustainable in terms of transmission. Um, a virus is not a concern if it's only gonna go if it's not, if it's going to dead end, if uh, people aren't going to infect other people, then it's most likely not going to be a concern immediately. If it doesn't transmit very well between people, it's not a huge concern. But it's when we start to see like respiratory syncytial virus, for example, in kids. Like one kid gets RSV and every kid has RSV. Something that's like that transmittable. If it were a little bit more dangerous, it's already a, a big concern. But that level of transmission have serious implications and so I think scientists are, are doing a lot on that front I think it's difficult from the politician standpoint because I understand that politicians don't have like all the money in the world to make everything happen and a lot of science is funded by the government and so from that standpoint I think there's a difference between awareness and action perhaps that we've seen uh, and that there might be greater awareness than willingness to act in the case of early, spillover and emergence events. And so I think talking to other scientists, a lot of people would like to see a lot more action really quickly. But there's also, I think, a balance where politicians are doing what they they can with the amount of resources that can be devoted toward responding in that kind of event. I think COVID ended up being kind of best case scenario from a research standpoint in that like the vaccine effort was Tremendous, like definitely a once in a lifetime thing to be sitting around watching as this vaccine gets developed and employed so, so quickly. And I think that that was a really strong response. And I think that developing that mRNA vaccine technology is going to be really exciting and helpful moving forward uh, for just manipulating that between different systems and that that will help us be more prepared in the future as well. But I definitely think on the scientist standpoint, there is a, a large call for even more increased awareness, even more surveillance, more of a budget to respond to these kinds of things. Because we saw, even if these events aren't occurring all the time, they're getting more and more frequent, like I said, because of the globalization and that's infringing on wildlife habitats. And if these things aren't going to go away, then we need to sort of be more prepared to deal with the consequences of them. Personally, I do see that as a weakness. Like in the present and in the past in terms of our responsiveness, just unwillingness to act until it's like game time.
2: I was just wondering, in terms of resources, um, do we have sort of predictive modeling in terms of how these viruses might mutate and what the most likely mutations are and, and how that will affect um, infect-
1: infectivity and also um, lethality? definitely one of the things that's really cool that we can do i think is really cool that we can do um are these virus evolution studies where essentially we can simulate multiple rounds of infection of a virus like through a bunch of different cells and so we can we call them serial passaging experiments where we basically infect a bunch of cells with virus and then once the virus has grown and killed a bunch of the cells we take the virions the virus that gets produced from the cells And we use that to infect more cells and we use that to infect more cells and we use that to infect more cells. And we do this a whole bunch of times to sort of simulate in the environment virus getting passed between cells, between different people. Um, And so we can see by that the mutations that emerge over time and predict regions that are more easily mutated. So one of the reasons for doing that is for finding things that never get mutated when you do that, because maybe those are things that are essential for the virus to do its job. Um, and all of these other things are dispensable. And so that's another way that they do like vaccine targets is things that are not as likely to change and evolve. And so there are definitely really cool models like that. And there are also really cool computer models that people can do where they map out essentially more in the public health sector than the biology sector, but they can map out um, who might be likely to come into contact with whom and how quickly viruses might be able to spread based on how transmittable that they are and like the kind of impact that that could have on the local population. Yeah, lethality is definitely harder. It's, diff- it's, it's a bit more difficult without like actually studying the virus in cells and animals and people um, to really know how lethal a virus is going to be and like how the immune system is going to respond to it, how quickly immune system is going to react and fight it off. And so that's like another, we need, you know, just more science. We need more research on these emerging viruses to be able to do that kind of thing. It'd be really cool to see funding for viruses that maybe you wouldn't care about on the surface for them to still go study them. Because I think one of the downsides is that the viruses that get the most funding for us to study those kinds of things are the ones that have already shown some promise to be Dangerous, uh, and that sort of misses the whole mark of wanting to catch something before it's a problem.
3: All right, I have a question that I, um, I feel like I have thought about so much during the past couple years with COVID. Why do people have so such varied symptoms to the same virus?
1: Ooh. This is a million dollar question in science. I guess the long story short is we don't know exactly. Um, and a lot of different things can contribute. Um, one of the things that can vary is that, you know, different strains of viruses and based on your immune, his- immune system's history, your immune system might be better prepared to recognize and fight off certain viruses than others. And a lot of that just has to do with what you were exposed to. Um, So if you were exposed to a lot more viruses as a kid and your body fought them off as a kid, your body might be more likely now to recognize related viruses to what you saw then and fight them off quickly. And so maybe someone who doesn't get as severe of symptoms could just have, like their immune system could be better at recognizing the virus right off the bat and doing something about it. A lot of the things that we also look at are these sort of comorbidities. Uh, A lot of times it's, it's sort of like some of, all the parts sort of situation where if your body is functioning in every other way really well, then this one stressor isn't going to be in most cases as devastating as for someone where the body's already experiencing varied stressors to add like one more thing to it could be more dangerous for them, uh, more deadly for them because they're just not, their body has resources dedicated to other things and just can't dedicate every single resource to like nipping this thing in the bud immediately. Another thing that's interesting, and that is sort of my one of my favorite areas of research is that these, uh, in, in viruses, like I mentioned, it, it there's a virus, uh, but there are also all these variants and sort of different versions of the virus that are all infecting alongside what we think of as the standard typical virus. Um, but there are also these things that get produced during infection called non-standard viral genomes, which can happen where they're still able to get replicated, but they need the full-length virus to get replicated. So, so they wouldn't infect a cell by themselves, but they would get into cells along with standard virus and get replicated a whole bunch. Um, and these non-standard viral genomes have been shown to stimulate the um, innate immune system. So your body's way ability to recognize the, the virus at the very beginning and do something about it. also promote cell survival during virus infections. The cells that produce a whole bunch of these things survive where the cells that produce very few of these things get killed pretty quickly. And they can also just interfere with the ability of the standard virus to replicate in the first place because like I said they're getting replicated by the same machinery as the regular virus, the standard virus, but they're in a lot of cases a lot shorter than the full genome and so it's easier to make a whole bunch of them in a cell. Um, And these things, especially in the context of RNA virus infections like Hanifa viruses are really important to think about because that's like a whole part of the infection dynamics. Um, And we can see some like host specific generation of these non-standard viral genomes. Like sometimes uh, when we look at cohorts of patients sometimes they produce the same exact kinds of non-standard viral genomes um, like conserved across many patients which suggests that like both the virus and the host are participating in generating these species. Uh, and so that's sort of like another theory that plays into different responses is that different people might be more likely to make more or less of these things, which could affect, like I said, like immune responses. Um, and a lot of times it's easier to clear a virus if you can get a robust immune response quickly. There, I'm sure there are also many more factors than that, but those are sort of to scratch the surface. Some of the things that could be playing into that dynamic.
2: I'd love to talk about climate change. I'd like to know how that kind of plays into the whole thing. Um, Like you said, it seems like there's more and more outbreaks and spillover events. I'd love to hear from an expert um, how all that works.
1: Absolutely. So I, that's like my favorite thing to go rambling about lately is the impact that we have on enabling these spillover events and, and not to like put blame on humanity for getting infected with viruses, that sounds pretty toxic. But one of the things that has such a huge role is just access. Um, it's way easier to get infected with a virus that wasn't an animal if you are near that animal. Um, and so when people are, are building and expanding and taking over habitats, these animals are forced to move around elsewhere And you may never have come into contact with a flying fox secretion before, but if you killed the tree where these guys are hanging out and then they've got nowhere else to go, they might be in your attic now. And and that just enhances how likely you are to come into contact with them. And also, it brings animals closer to other animals because a lot of animals live spread out over these habitats, but when you force them out, they're sort of forced to condense And find new areas which brings them closer to each other, which makes a virus more likely to hop between different animals. Like it's not specifically like with birds or mammals, for example, like if you've got different species of birds that are suddenly forced to come together, there might be viruses that some of these birds have been dealing with that other birds have not been dealing with. And then, when you put them in the same place, the birds that were not used to it suddenly get sick with this new virus and they can go spread it or they can end up getting killed. And that can sort of affect the, the whole chain of everything. And the same happens with mammals. Like, if there's a, a virus that's super prevalent in, I don't know, something you hunt, um, and you have hunting dogs uh, and your dogs come into contact with these things, and then you come into contact with your dog. By going into that habitat, it sort of can mediate more of these spillover events than when we. I'm not saying we have to keep ourselves like separate from animals, but by preserving their habitats and letting them continue their like life circles, life cycles, and circle of life, in their own space, it's a lot easier for us to prevent these like massive public health crises that can emerge. And so, like with COVID, for example. Um, this like very concentrated market with a lot of livestock. It's been hypothesized that these virus, like the the coronaviruses could have been passed between the different livestock. And that that also, because now there's a bunch of people that are handling them very closely. They're not only in close proximity to each other, but in close proximity to people. And then they're getting taken away where they can go somewhere else. And so they sort of have this whole new world of hosts once they get out of that market. And so the more that we infringe on these habitats and infringe on this like natural order of animals being animals, the more likely we are to sort of experience these spillover events. And it can go the other way too, that we can give them viruses that can then replicate through a few cycles in them and maybe find their way back to us. And so viruses are, they're sort of everywhere. They're always, always in and around and sometimes we're noticing them and sometimes they're going around undetected, but they're sort of always present.
3: It sounds like
1: we might have to get used to
3: pandemics.
1: Yeah, it does definitely sound that way. I think one of the things that's interesting too is considering like the public attitudes toward vaccines and therapies and mitigation of how like virus transmission So we saw sort of early days people weren't necessarily that willing to quarantine at least and they weren't necessarily that willing to wear masks and they maybe still aren't that excited about the vaccine. And it's really interesting because, like I said, I was talking about the um, Hendra virus earlier with the horses. So that one, there's like now a vaccine for horses that's against Hendra viruses that you can get in Australia if you've got horses, knowing That these viruses are circulating in horses and that then they're jumping to people and killing people. People are still like, do I really wanna vaccinate my horse? Maybe, maybe not. And sometimes that's like a, a hard no, I actively don't want to. And sometimes that's just like a laziness. I didn't consider that I might need to. Like, I didn't really realize the problem. But I think that the more that we have that attitude of like, the virus isn't gonna affect me, like, whatever this is doesn't matter to me. I think it really facilitates that like eventually it will. I definitely think that unless we're gonna start like really taking big actions to protect habitats and to like minimize air travel and to do like surveillance testing of asymptomatic people and try to make sure that viruses don't spread. If we did all of these things, we might be able to reduce these events, but I still don't think we could fully eliminate them. I think that we can see that pandemics are a part of human history and they're likely to be a part of human future, too. But the more also that we can study them and predict them and find broad therapeutic and vaccine options for like families and groups of viruses instead of maybe specific viruses, the more we can get on top of that so that maybe it won't be such a big deal. I think sometimes about how like with antibiotic resistance and bacteria, when bacteria become when someone has a bacterial infection that's resistant to antibiotic A, we give them antibiotic B. And so like while there's an antibiotic crisis going on right now that is undeniable, um, there are sort of options broadly against bacteria. Um, And if we could have more antiviral options that are applicable to like broadly more classes of viruses, that would be helpful. But like I mentioned earlier, it's tough because some viruses have RNA genomes, some of them have DNA genomes, some of them get into cells totally differently from others, they replicate differently from each other. Um, Viruses are super specialized little replication killing factories. And so it can definitely be nice because you can design maybe biomarkers, like it might be easier to tell you've got one virus over another kind of thing, but it might be tougher to come up with something that directly targets some part of the virus if the virus can just constantly change, <laughs> which is exactly you know the game we play with flu every year, predicting how that virus is going to change and designing vaccines that we believe will be most effective against what's predominantly going to circulate, which props to the people who do that. That is a job that sounds extremely intense to me. Another interesting thing, speaking of sort of vaccines and treatments, there are no obviously approved treatments or vaccines for longia virus also for HANEPA viruses more broadly, but ribavirin has shown up as a potential option in these studies that were done with essentially experimentally infecting a bunch of animals and then treating them with known antivirals that we like know work against some other virus and seeing which could work. Um, and ribavirin showed up, um, which has been used for other respiratory viral diseases and ribavirin in combination with the antimalarial drug chloroquine that we've been Hearing about not too long ago um, was uh, shown effective to treat Hendra and Nipah infections, so that could be a possibility for lanya But as long as no one is like dying from it, it would be better to come up with a treatment that is maybe more specific for HANEPA viruses. A lot of times, those like combination therapies of existing drugs can have really interesting side effect combinations. And I mean, it's great to have them and it's great to be able to repurpose drugs, but it's also really important that we design more antivirals. And I think there's a lot of research right now that is going into that. And I, I, one thing I like about this Lanya story is that it, it sort of highlights the like tip of the iceberg of viruses a little bit, where animal viruses are constantly spilling over to people and they go completely undetected. Um, and we like basically never find them until they start to cause real disease. And while longia virus isn't fatal and it doesn't seem to be spreading easily between people, um, and also since shrews can clearly pass viruses to people, um, as this virus is changing and adapting, it could end up infecting people directly more often or like spreading between people. And there's this um, person, Emily Gurley, she's an infectious diseases epidemiologist at Johns Hopkins. And she said that large outbreaks of infectious diseases typically take off after a lot of false starts. If we're actively looking for these sparks, then we're in a much better position to stop or to find something early. And I just, I don't think that, you know, the general public really knew that going into COVID as just our most recent example. I think it raises a lot of really interesting points about just how we communicate as scientists in a way that is like more real. Sometimes I think scientists can fall into a trap of just trying to oversimplify things to the public. And maybe the public doesn't want the gross oversimplification. Maybe they want like a couple more details, but they just want it explained in a way that is like authentic and comprehensive but also not full of jargon. And I, I don't necessarily think that that should be too much to ask for.
2: Um, so when we're talking about the family and the genus of these viruses, what, what are those commonalities between one versus the other? Like what, what causes something to be classified as part of the same family or part of the same genus?
1: So just like we can make for like animals and bacteria and everything else, we can create phylogenetic trees for viruses where we line up the genomes of a bunch of different viruses that are closely related. Um, or more distantly related. And we can use this to sort of cluster, to, to make clusters of viruses with certain characteristics. Like when we did this for Hanipa viruses, we see two clusters. Uh, we see bat Hanipa viruses that bind specific receptors called ephrine that let them enter cells. And then the shrew ones that don't seem to have this receptor, but still get into people somehow. So we can say at least two ways that it can get into cells. And so we can sort of do these phylogenetic analyses to cluster things together and that's one way that we can find out that things are related or not related at the very beginning when they like patient comes in and is sick they take swab of patient the very first thing that they do is take that sample and prepare it for sequencing and so they sequence everything that was in that test tube and use all of those things because it's a bunch of cut up pieces of RNA They basically use a computer to line up all of those cut up pieces of RNA, because if you cut up 100 base pairs of RNA and you've got like 30 base pairs of a fragment, maybe 40 base pairs of a fragment and maybe another 40 base pairs of a fragment, they overlap in some places. And so you can find the places where they overlap and construct like full sequences of genomes of any species, any organism that way. Uh, and so that's a lot of what happens with early virus identification is that they do these like whole sequencing of genomes, and then they make these trees and align them to everything that we already know. And a lot of times it'll be like, okay, well, we know it aligns within paramyxoviruses. We know it aligns within viruses, but then it doesn't align within anything else. And so we say, we suggest that this is a new virus and here's what we're going to call it. And that's sort of how like when new viruses get del- discovered that they get reported. Yeah, one thing that was interesting um, in this story too is that the Lanya RNA that they found, so they found a lot of Lanya virus in shrews, which is why they called that the natural reservoir. But they also found it in 2% of the goats that they tested and 5% of the dogs that they tested, which sort of supports that same thing of your livestock and your domesticated animals coming in contact with the more wild animals and then coming in contact with you and causing problems. And so shrews are actually like... Like I said earlier, I think one of the most abundant mammalian species worldwide, um, and I've never actually met a shrew myself, so I was super surprised to learn about that when I was getting into Nipah virus research. There are like white-toothed shrews, red-toothed shrews, and African shrews. And the ones that were important for Lanyavirus virus were the white-toothed shrews. They're like everywhere, like North America, South America, Africa, Eurasia, mainland Asia, Australian continental shelf islands, like they're super widely distributed. And so it it definitely was interesting to see, like, given the amount of shrews, the the potential that if more of these shrews come into contact with other shrews, that these kind of things could spread without even being necessarily detected in people by just spreading through a shrew population and that maybe someone in an island somewhere gets infected with the virus from a shrew and you're like, wait a second, that virus is related to this other virus that was over here. And that's sort of how we start to track viruses spreading globally.
3: What is the definition of a reservoir?
1: So a reservoir is the place that that virus usually is. So just when no spillover is happening, no emergence is happening, everything is just hunky-dory normal, the kind of species that you find it in. So sometimes you find like reservoir, like if the reservoir is a bat, for example, that means that this virus is just getting passed between bats and living and existing within bats, evolving within bats. It's whole the virus's whole world is bats. Um, and then there can be an intermediate host where, because we sort of put everything in perspective of people as the center of the universe, so an intermediate host is between people and the natural host where it typically replicates. So we find really high levels of virus replicating in the reservoir hosts. And then these intermediate hosts, we might find dramatically less virus replicating. So those are sort of like the goat and the dogs. Those would be intermediate hosts in this. Potentially, um, they didn't prove whether the Lanya virus went directly from the shrews to the people or if it went shrews to one of those animals to the people. But if that happened, it could be an intermediate host. So sometimes it can be easier for a virus to go from like maybe a bird to a mammal to a person than a bird to a person. And so these intermediate hosts can facilitate the jump from a reservoir to people. And again, we consider people as like the center of the universe. So intermediate is in relation to people between people and the natural reservoir, which is the the, the main place. So a virus can have multiple natural reservoirs. You can find like one virus circulates really well in dogs and possums or something like that. It doesn't necessarily have to be a single natural reservoir as long as it's super highly prevalent.
3: So follow-up question to that. Do we just randomly test animals to see what viruses they have? Or is it normally go in the other direction of we see symptoms in humans and then we track it back and that's when we start testing animals?
1: It's more the second option than the first option. So we definitely... There are sometimes people get grants, like um, there are people at WashU that go out and look for viruses in ticks in Missouri and and look for like viruses that infected a tick that could have potential one day to get to people because we know that ticks bite people. Um, and so there are definitely people that do that sort of very preliminary research where it you have no idea if it could end up being a problem, but you're looking for anything anyway. But That's not all of people. I'd say more often the like a lot of times when those happen, it's like you report that you found it, but you maybe don't like study everything about it. And so those labs are like really specialized at finding new viruses. Um, but the viruses that get studied further past that point of identification are typically the ones that show something interesting, like they replicate in multiple hosts or they replicate really quickly or they have symptoms that they're causing. And that's sort of just a side effect of resources. There's only so much money to fund science and it's like crazy how much money it costs to do science. And so like I'd, I'd heard someone give a figure the other day of like it costing essentially like almost $200,000 for all the resources that come together to make a single scientific publication and to consider like how much money like you could buy a house in St. Louis for that kind of money. And, and for all of that to be for maybe like a, this protein does this thing kind of statement is, is definitely, I think it can give someone an appreciation for, how, how limiting it can be to do science from a cost standpoint too. You've got to sort of prioritize the things that are right now the biggest deal, which means sometimes sacrificing things that are not as prominently problematic right now. There are a lot of people that are advocating for that system to change.
3: Yeah, I think that's an interesting point because I have a feeling that economically it would be a lot less expensive for us if we got ahead of stuff and were able to uh, spend more money on prevention instead of uh, waiting until it becomes a big problem.
1: Absolutely. In that case where they had to call the like million pigs in um, Malaysia, I can only think about like they lost 30% of their economy that year from that if they had just like caught the virus before that started to happen, or if they had had a better way to figure out like what's infected, like, they could have potentially saved themselves from an enormous economic impact. And that's sort of nothing compared to what we're seeing now with COVID. But it's just the economic consequences are crazy because it's not just public health consequences. It's like livestock. It's gas. It's everything. Everything gets affected by, by pandemics. And so it's definitely a ripple effect that would be really much less expensive to curb at the start. I'd love to do a quick summary based on this of sort of everything we know about the new Longia virus, though. An elevator spiel, I guess, of if you didn't listen to any of the podcasts until now, what you should take away. So first, Longia virus is a Hnipa virus, like Nipa and Hender viruses, but its natural reservoir is shrews, not bats. Two, longivirus virus causes respiratory symptoms that can range in severity, but so far it hasn't been fatal. And three, longivirus virus does not spread easily between people. So should we be worried that this virus is going to cause the next global pandemic? Probably not. Should we increase surveillance of new virus spillover events? Absolutely. you have got nothing else from this paper. Those are your three. I don't really have a question, but I have to.
2: I did kind of like it. because They were like, okay, so here's um, some people who have this illness and then they tested the, it seems like they tested the immediate people around them and then they tested the immediate animals around them and that's how they found all their stuff.
1: Definitely. It's really interesting the kinds of things that they do it's tough because when the sample size is this small like 35 people is the high end 26 of the cases are confirmed you don't have a whole lot of options for contact tracing you kind of have to deal with whatever is like available to you they i think they gave a sentence where they were like defending the fact that they only traced nine people but they still trace like nine whole people and everything and found no commonalities between them and, and could make a compelling argument that at least at the sample size There's not spread happening between people, but, you know, there is always the caveat that if you looked at a thousand of these cases, would you still see no transmission between people? Maybe, maybe not.
3: So the end of the paper talks about how we need to do a better job of having um, preventative measures and implementing proactive control strategies um, to limit the spread of viruses. I guess I'm curious for these new emergent viruses, what does prevention for them look like?
1: A lot of the prevention can look like being really careful with overcrowding of both people and livestock. So these like markets like we saw that have a ton of different exotic and wild creatures all cooped up together, not doing that is a great start at prevention. And also what we were talking about with Minimizing deforestation and climate or in habitat displacement are other ways of helping with the prevention, and then these surveillance of non symptomatic people and animals is another really important one. We see a lot of pigs over here that are transmitting this to people. A way to be more preventative could be testing pigs just because for anything that they might have and cataloging at this point in time, these pigs are have been exposed to this list of viruses. And so that can be a way to figure it out earlier because not every virus is a problem. Everything is going to get infected with some viruses. There's not going to be a pig that never got sick unless maybe it lived in a lab its whole life. And so it's not necessarily a matter of entire avoidance as much as like monitoring for things that could be more problematic. So things that are similar to things that have been problematic in the past. And a lot of these studies are starting to get done, but it's a matter of funding them. I think COVID is helping global leadership understand that viruses matter, but it can still be tough when maybe a, a specific country has a pressing economic issue that's not related to something you can't see to really prioritize that thing that you can't see.
3: I am curious if you have any recommendations for someone who is like a has a casual interest in viruses to stay up to date on kind of what's being talked about in that world
1: the cdc also does post a lot of these things um, and it can feel intimidating to look through their website and to like really dig for the news but they do oftentimes make an effort to explain things in the layperson way and then link to the actual research and that can be super nice for Get the summary, click on the thing, maybe skim through a little bit, but not necessarily have to read all of it. And that's a way there are scientists on Twitter that there are a lot of specific researchers, like individual researchers that make a point of promoting this kind of thing. and So So as far as virologists to follow on Twitter, I know that Dr. Angela Rasmussen, it's at Angie underscore R-A-S-M-U-S-S-E-N, their PI and Virologist who post a lot of updates and interpretations of new virology news. And then I also know of Dr. Ben Ben-Hur Lee. Uh, their handle is at Virus Whisperer. Um, it's maybe less targeted for the general public, but they do touch on a lot of social issues arising with science in addition to talking about new additions in virology. And then another one, um, Trevor Bedford, it's at T-R-V-R-B. Uh, They're a great virologist who focuses more on emergence and evolution, and they might be more likely to post about the kind of content we've been discussing today. They also do a lot of analysis of new COVID variants, which I think is really cool. Beyond virologists specifically, uh, some great places to look for just general updates on new science would be at Nature News, uh, and that's good for updates on published and peer-reviewed science with some communications and opinion pieces from reputable science uh, scientists, but it's definitely it's sort of based on existing public. When things get published, they show up on Nature News. Uh, and then New Scientist, at New Scientist, is another goodie for keeping up with fresh-off-the-press scientist and BBC Science News does a lot of great science updates targeted at the general public that are Sort of guaranteed to be more easily digestible stories. So, depending on how much time you're looking to spend and what exactly you're looking to follow, these are some recommendations that I would I would send your way. So, I know that this publication is intended for surgeons, but
2: I do know that when medical professionals are seeing patients, that there's you know very strict protocols m- most of the time. So, how often, and do you know anything about the process from something like this, like a like a um, an effort in knowledge leads to an actual change in protocol.
1: I think one of the things that's helpful by having these sort of communications is that maybe a scientist who's not thinking about hemipoviruses at all, now is thinking about hemipoviruses and if they get someone who tests negative on all their panels, they might be more likely to be like, oh, maybe you have something interesting instead of you've got something generic, go home. And so that could be sort of another perk to having these kinds of communications going out to medical professionals too.
0: So before we finish the episode, I'd like to hear from everyone. What was the most interesting thing that you learned from this paper?
1: The thing I was most excited about with this was that it was the first shrew-born Hanepa virus that got into people. And so it was sort of a good argument until that point. It was easier to discard if this virus is in a shrew, we're fine. Because the Hanepa viruses that we're worried about all come from bats. And so with this, it was sort of a great way to start making the argument that no, it doesn't matter where they're coming from, they can still spill over to people and we should be aware of them and sort of just continues to make the case for surveillance early and often. I would
3: also have to say, I think it's really inter- interesting that shrews can be a reservoir. Like, I think before we had this conversation, I always thought about like bats and rats um as being the main animals that, pass along viruses to humans. And I think it's really interesting to know that there are so many more animals um, that are kind of part of this process than just some of the ones that we mostly hear
2: about. I also thought the shrews were fascinating because I never thought about the fact that shrews are probably all around me constantly. But I also thought it was really interesting to hear about how this type of like serology and like testing is done and how when someone gets sick the process goes from oh this person has these symptoms to the tracing of the people and, and the surroundings I thought that was really cool
0: well thank you all for being on this very interesting podcast it was a pleasure talking to all of you about viruses thank you so much for having us
2: yeah thank you
1: that was awesome yeah it was really fun i learned a lot If anyone heard something on this podcast and is interested in reaching out to hear more, they can contact me at e.pye at woostel.edu. Yeah,
0: there is is a tab on the website that says Continue the Conversation. Um, It's at inplainenglishpod.org. And if anybody listening has questions um, or things that they were interested in following up on from this podcast, you can submit questions there in addition to uh, SB's email, and we will do an extra little blurb about those questions. So please please do use that. Um, we want the conversation to continue, because obviously this is not all that there is to be said about uh, Henipa viruses, or any kind of virus in general. With that, uh, we're going to close out the podcast. We have been talking about the paper, uh, Lanya virus, a newly identified Henipa virus in China, Zoonotic Pathogen Causing Febrile Illness in Humans and Its Health Concerns, Current Knowledge, and Counteracting Strategies by Sandeep Chakraborty et al. And we've been talking about this with Pi, Tanya Linz, and Hannah Tretanero. As always, you can find this paper for free to download on our website at InPlainEnglishPod.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at PlainEnglishSci. That's P-L-A-I-N-E-N-G-L-I-S-H-S-C-I. Make sure to subscribe to In Plain English on Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you never miss an episode. And you can become a supporter of this podcast on Patreon. Thanks again for listening and tune in next month for another episode of In Plain English.